Nick's on the phone when Andy gets back from lunch. From the way Nick is drumming his fingers and the depth of the crease between his eyebrows, Andy guesses it isn't going well. Nick looks up, and whatever he sees in Andy's face must not be good. Can't hear you, he says into the phone. Line's gone bad. He drops the receiver into the cradle and gets to his feet. Andy sinks into his chair at the desk across from Nick's. Who have we alienated now? He asks, trying to sound normal. You look like shit. What happened? How's Emily? She's fine, Andy lies. His entire goal in life is to delay this conversation until after they leave the office, preferably until they're somewhere dark and with a liquor license and where nobody can watch Andy fall apart. Well, nobody other than Nick. Yeah, well, you sure aren't. What's the matter? Nick is still standing, his hands braced on the desk as he leans forward, almost looming over Andy. You know you're going to tell me eventually, so just spit it out. Andy lowers his voice, even though this will be common knowledge in a matter of hours. She called off the wedding. She did what? Nick sits heavily in his chair and stares at him. Are you sure? Andy lets out a humorless laugh and scrubs his hand along his jaw. I'm sure. She met someone else in London. Her mother's cardiologist. Her mother's... Do I look like I give a fuck who? Jesus Christ, I thought she was smart. Andy glares at him. She is. These things happen. You can't always control who you fall for. Something complicated happens to Nick's face. He holds up his hands. Sorry. You're supposed to be friends with her. Don't be a jerk out of loyalty to me. She's having a rough... He swallows, and shit, he's going to cry in the middle of the newsroom, which is the only thing that could make today any worse. All right. Nick takes a clean handkerchief out of his desk drawer and slides it over to Andy. Let's get out of here, he says, checking his watch. It's too early to leave. It's barely three. Andy can't remember the last time either of them went home before seven. I was figuring on spending the rest of the afternoon getting the runaround from the mayor's office and then heading over to the first precinct to see if I could get a quote from the captain about the fires in the warehouse district. Another fire? Andy asks, momentarily distracted. There's been a string of highly suspicious warehouse fires in the area just below Houston. No, but the building that burned down on Tuesday is owned by the deputy mayor's brother-in-law. He waves a sheaf of papers that Andy recognizes as copies of deeds from the city registrar's office. But that can wait until Monday. Like hell it can. Honestly, with you in this state, we aren't going to get much of anything done anyway. Andy frowns. It's pitiful to drop a lead because Andy is sad. His mother filed a story half an hour before Andy was born, for God's sake. But Andy already knows he isn't cut from the same cloth as either of his parents. The story wasn't going in tomorrow's paper anyway, though, so Nick has a point. Andy twists the handkerchief in his hands. I don't want to go back there. Where? My apartment. He doesn't want to explain, 
doesn't want to think about how empty the place is, despite it being cluttered with all the stuff of his mother's that he still hasn't thrown out. He definitely doesn't want to think about all the different varieties of loneliness he's experienced in the 25 years, on and off, that he's lived in that apartment. All the times he's woken up there, alone, and how little he cares to repeat the experience. He ought to have gotten a cat, but he'd probably forget to feed it. He'd forget he had a cat in the first place. One day, he'd absentmindedly arrive at work with the cat on his shoulder. He drags his mind away from the imaginary world in which he could take care of a cat or himself or a fiancé, and looks instead at the handkerchief, white cotton, crisp and smooth. He wonders if Nick irons them himself. You'll stay with me, Nick says. Andy looks up abruptly. I can't, because if you don't, then I'm just going to have to spend the night wherever you do wind up staying, which means the food in my icebox will go to waste. I don't have any clothes. I'll get you things. Nick has a key. He has multiple keys, because Andy's occasionally still go missing, disappearing into the same abyss as his handkerchiefs. Nick? Yeah? Thanks. Nick scowls. When he gets to his feet, he claps a hand on Andy's shoulder. Andy teeters on the brink between misery and unhinged laughter as he lets Nick all but shove him into a chair in an empty office, one floor down from the newsroom. This floor is a hangover from the Chronicle's glory days, when every square foot of the building was crammed full of reporters and clerks and copy editors, not to mention the rest of the staff that makes a newspaper run. Now, it, like approximately a third of the building, collects dust. If Andy had his way, well, no use thinking of that, especially not today. It's a relief to be out of the newsroom, with its typewriters and ringing telephones and raised voices, its harsh overhead lighting and the cloud of smoke that lingers even after everyone has gone home. He usually doesn't mind it, Likes it, even, because it's fundamentally impossible to feel alone in a newsroom. But right now, he doesn't want to be looked at. A fact that Nick somehow picked up on, without Andy having to say anything. Sometimes it's a bit mortifying, the way Nick sees right through Andy's attempts to seem normal. He can't remember exactly when Nick started looking after him like a lost dog. But he isn't complaining. He sort of does need looking after at least if he wants to keep up the facade of being a functioning member of society. Nick seems to have accepted that Andy's a mess and not inquired too closely into it. Emily had done the same, but Andy refuses to think about that right now. He's never been competent, he supposes. There's scatterbrained, and then there's whatever Andy is. He wouldn't have gotten through school without classmates reminding him about assignments, janitors returning lost notebooks, and a fair amount of money to smooth away. The fact that his father thinks he's going to run the Chronicle as soon as next year is, frankly, insane. Did you manage to eat anything at lunch? Nick asks. Andy tries to remember. There had been a piece of bread, he thinks, and maybe some butter. But after that, he was distracted by his world crumbling around him and all that. That's a no, Nick says. I'll have something sent up. You sure you don't want to tuck me into bed? Andy grumbles. 
Nick mutters something unintelligible before stomping off in the direction of the elevator. A few minutes later, a copy boy arrives with a cup of coffee and one of those black and white cookies from the deli downstairs, which is fine. But then he sticks around, lurking between the office door and the elevator bank, trying to look inconspicuous and failing by a mile. Seriously? Andy asks when he's half done with the cookie. Did Nick tell you to babysit me? No, says the copy boy. Walter, Andy thinks. Mr. Russo said I had to stick around until you finish the cookie. Andy sighs, shoves the rest of the cookie into his mouth, and shoos the kid away. He's fine. Or he will be. Weddings get called off all the time, don't they? But whenever people talk about it, they speak about embarrassment or inconvenience or even scandal. But all Andy feels is heartbreak, he supposes, with a side order of loneliness. He loved Emily. He still loves her, although knowing she doesn't love him back anymore makes him feel awkward and conspicuous about it, like he's clinging to some embarrassingly passe fashion and hasn't noticed everybody else moving on. Abruptly, he realizes that even though he isn't thinking in terms of inconvenience or scandal, his father will. He gets to his feet, downs the rest of his coffee, tosses the paper cup in the garbage, and hits the elevator call button. Mr. Fleming is on a call, his father's secretary says when Andy approaches the publisher's office. Could you tell him it's urgent? His father has to find out from Andy before he finds out from anyone else. The secretary's left eyebrow doesn't quite rise. She's paid too well for that. But it flickers. Of course, Mr. Fleming. She repeats Andy's message into the telephone and then gestures him into his father's office. What's the matter? His father asks before the door is even shut. We've called off the wedding. Andy sits in one of the guest chairs and braces himself. His father stares. By that, I assume you mean that Miss Warburton called off the wedding, and you're being too gentlemanly to say so, because when we spoke a few days ago, you were asking whether to take two weeks off for your honeymoon. When Andy doesn't answer, his father sighs and takes off his glasses. She went to London to look after her mother when Mrs. Warburton had a heart attack, didn't she? His father asks. That was six weeks ago. I believe you mentioned she was due to return last night. Andy can almost see the pieces falling into place in his father's mind. Andy isn't going to give away Emily's private business. Frankly, there's no succinct way to tell the story that makes either of them look particularly good. Emily fell for another man, and even after being rejected by that man and returning home heartbroken, she still doesn't want to be with Andy. Nobody comes out the winner in this story. His father wordlessly opens a desk drawer and takes out two glasses and a bottle of what Andy knows is top-shelf scotch. He fills both glasses and pushes one across the desk to Andy. Are you all right? Andy tries not to look surprised, but it still comes as a bit of a shock when his father acts like he cares. It's probably cynical, but Andy doesn't know what else to think when his father, who was little more than a passing presence in his life until Andy's mother's death, 
suddenly decides to play the part. He downs about half his glass, buying time to come up with an answer. About as well as can be expected. Thank God she isn't working at the Chronicle anymore, his father says. Andy suppresses a shudder. What would he say if he ran into her in the elevator or the cafeteria? What would she say? But she gave notice when they got engaged, so at least that's one thing he doesn't have to worry about. Did something happen? His father asks. Andy catches himself biting his nails and quickly returns his hand to the arm of his chair. He knows that his father isn't asking if Andy did something to screw this up, but the truth is that he wishes he had an answer. There must have been something, even though Emily said it wasn't his fault. But as far as he can remember, things were perfectly normal between them before she went to London. The first couple of letters he got from her seemed normal too. After that, not so much, but he chalked that up to her anxiety over her mother's health. It hadn't occurred to him that spending over a month in a strange city looking after a sick parent was anything out of the ordinary. He would have done the same for his own mother if he had gotten the chance. Maybe if he had done something as soon as Emily had first seemed distant. Maybe if he'd gotten on the first flight to London. Maybe if he'd sent more flowers or written more often or done something. He could have prevented things from going wrong. Instead, he's left believing that it's just him. That he's in some way insufficient, which is, of course, true. He's forgetful, absent-minded, perpetually late, easily flustered, and lazy. Emily never once acted bothered by any of that. But probably after spending time with a man who doesn't have any of those deficiencies, she realized how bad she had it. He can hardly blame her for leaving.